If you haven't been with us, we're in this series uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament, uh, King and Kingdom. Uh, We've been there since, well, just before Christmas, we said, as we looked at the coming King, as we looked at Jesus, and the first few chapters helped us see him, uh, and then these last Well, three weeks. This is week number four. We've been in chapter five of Matthew. The start of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is our fourth week. It's also our final week in chapter five. I'd love to spend another couple of weeks here, if I'm honest, but I've already pushed Cal back one week, so uh, we need to let him start chapter six with us next week. So we're going to dive straight in. As last week, we started at verse 17 of chapter 5, if you've got your Bibles open in front of you. Where we started last week, we saw that Jesus said he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And last week, we asked, what does that mean then? What does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law and the prophets? And we saw last week in four ways. First, he fulfilled them as they were the one he was pointing to. All the Old Testament, all the promises, the symbols, and the laws of the Old Testament were pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the one true sacrifice. Secondly, Jesus fulfills them by keeping them. He is the spotless Lamb of God who lived a perfect life in love and obedience to the Father. Therefore, we said he could fulfill the law on my behalf as a representative, dying in my place, taking my rebellion against God, my sin upon himself, and taking my punishment so that I could know forgiveness of sin, peace with God, friendship with God. And finally, we thought what the rest of the chapter would then be talking about, that Jesus fulfills the law by filling full the law bringing out the real significance of God's commands that maybe had been lost by other religious leaders interpreting God's law. And we said last week, we saw that in the six illustrations that Jesus gives, where he takes the law and fills it full. Like we said last week, that what we read in the rest of this chapter is not the entirety of the law or a new law that Jesus was bringing. But what he does in these examples is he goes to the heart of the law as opposed to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees who taught a very legalistic, outward-looking, surface-level approach to the law. We finished last week by saying that this wasn't really anything new, but it had always been the purpose of the law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commands I give to you today are to be on your hearts. And as I reflected more on these words this week, I think it's why when we read, or why we read when we were studying Hebrews in chapter 10 of the new covenant there, God says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I've often talked when we looked at that passage about the promise of the Holy Spirit and having God's law constantly with us and the transforming of the Holy Spirit within to change us to be more like Jesus. And I believe that's right. But why the mind and the heart here? 
Why the emphasis on the law and the heart? Well, I think it's because the heart is the natural cultivating place of the law. Because the law is both living and loving. The law was never meant to be a mechanical thing. It was always living. And the heart is at the center of this. As we saw last week, the law takes a deep dive into our very hearts, to the seat of our passions, of our motives and our attitude. But the law is also about love. And the heart is the seat of that. The law was never supposed to be legalistic and stuffy. That's what the Pharisees had made it, but it was living and loving. The law shows us what real love looks like. Not a romanticized, sloppy love, but a real, radical, sacrificing, lasting love. You see, later on in this book of Matthew, Jesus will be asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first command. But the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. On these two commands, Jesus says, depend all the law and the prophets. How do we understand the law, Jesus says, not as the Pharisees have as a legalistic list, but in love. Love for God, love for your neighbor. And I believe that's what we'll see today as we look at the rest of the illustrations, the five others that Jesus gives as it takes us to the heart of the law. And I believe we need to see it. In a world that is so messed up on the topic of love, in a world that is crying out for real love, what we see here is what real love is looks like. So we're going to look at the other five illustrations that Jesus gives, but just the warning again as we approach these, and particularly the ones we're going to look at today. These are big topics today. Let's not run away from it. These are big topics, and they can be hard, but more of some theoretical thing we can discuss over there. These might be some things that you know and experience. And we are limited on time, and our aim is to see the law of love working out in these things. But as always, come and talk some more about them. Book in other times and come and chat about some of the things we're going to talk to today, if you want to talk about them more thoroughly. And as always, come and pray. We'll grab someone and pray these things through with you. We'll be delighted, be delighted to do that. So with that on the mind, let's throw the first one on the board. Jesus' first example, lust. Verse 27, where we started our reading today, and it follows the same pattern as last week. You have heard it said, Jesus introduces the law, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. This is the seventh commandment. And remember the pattern Jesus introduces how they have understood the law, the very legalistic surface level of it, 
and Jesus goes to the heart of it. And just like when we thought about murder last week, the interpretation of that law and of this law had been a very literal one. The Pharisees taught if you hadn't committed the physical act of adultery, extramarital sex, then you could tick this one off your list too. But Jesus again goes to the heart. Just like the act of murder starts in the heart with anger and pride, so does adultery in lust. So Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery begins in the eye and the heart. So the bar is so much higher than the religious leaders of the time had put it. Well, both my boys have disappeared, so I don't have to apologize to them, uh, but I do have to apologize to Pip, because I am going to talk about sex this morning. <laughs> so, sex is good. It is a gift from God. Sex is good, but the Bible is very clear that sex is good within the parameters that God has set between a man and woman in marriage. It's like a roaring fire in your house. If where it is supposed to be, if it's there, it's wonderful. I love our life group in Chris and Helena's house, particularly at the winter, because you walk in and they have the log fire burning and we sit by the fire and discuss the Bible. It's wonderful. And we watch the fire. It's beautiful and it's wonderful and we love it. But if there's fire in any other part of your house than that one place where it's supposed to be, then it's not beautiful anymore. It's dangerous. It destroys and you phone for help as quickly as you can. That is the same with sex. And we are seeing the results of this nation's attitude to sex. The lie of casual, no-string sex is becoming evident. We see lives ruined, broken families because of it. We see sexual crime at an all-time high. We see unwanted pregnancy, mental illness, and people struggling with self-worth, all because of the crusade of free love. But the Bible has always shown that as a lie. There is something special and wonderful in sex. God says two become one. Two people united. Not just bodies united, but beings united. And then there are scars from tearing that apart. But as we read here, Jesus doesn't allow us to say, well, I haven't done that, so I'm okay. Because adultery begins in the eye and the heart. What causes this? Well, it's lust. It's a sin of the heart. Someone who has an affair acts upon the desires of their heart. Therefore, this sin includes what goes on in the mind and the heart. Impure thought about someone else. Suggestive speech or casual flirting that rouses lustful desire. 
viewing pornography or reading explicit material. Love in sex is shed, a desire to give to your husband or wife, but lust says, I am out for my own satisfaction. So I am going to take, to fantasize, to watch, to do whatever I desire. And Jesus says, get rid of it. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better than you lose one of the members than the whole body be thrown into hell. What's this about? Is this how it works? If I do something wrong with my hand, I can lop it off and get rid of it and the rest of me goes to heaven? That's, that's not right, is it? Well, no, it's not. But Jesus, the wonderful preacher, is given an illustration they will never forget to show the seriousness of what he's saying. And we need to see it. I think it's fair to say that the sin of lust has done more damage to the church than any other. Marriages destroyed, lives devastated, families broken, leadership fallen, churches split, and gospel witness damaged because of it. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, get rid of lustful eyes. Lose grasping hands because it is better for you without them. It will be painful to do. It may take drastic sacrifices, changes in who you are with, stopping doing certain things you love, but you know that lead you to a place of lustful desire, but it's worth it, Jesus says, and we must. But as we read these verses, there's some hope in these verses as well. Hope, you say, lopping bits off and throwing it into the fires of hell, that all sounds pretty dark. Where's the hope? What Jesus is saying is this is necessary, it's hard, but by able, being able to cut something out, it means it's possible. It means by removing lust from your life, it means that that is not the whole of your life. You see, the world will make you think that sex is everything. It is who you are. And because such is the nature of sexual sin, because of its apparent attractiveness at first, its addictiveness and the bondage it brings, it can be all-consuming. It can bring hurt and shame and isolation and embarrassment. It can leave you thinking, well, this is who I am. And there's no escape from sexual sin. But do not be deceived into the hopeless abandonment to sin. I read a testimony this week of a man who was addicted to pornography. He started online watching thinking it was harmless until it built up so much so that he was watching seven and a half hours a day of pornography. He lost his family, 
because of it. He lost his job because of it. And he lost all purpose in life. Yet even in the midst of all that, he said he just still kept watching because he believed that was who he was. And then he met with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ broke into his life. And he was saved. But he was still very honest in his testimony. He says he was still fighting that now. But he has been able to stop and is rebuilding his life slowly. You see, the passage shows us lust is not the whole of your life. It is a sin And it is a sin that Jesus died for so that you could know freedom from it in your life. Now that's not saying it's easy. That's not saying it won't take the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. It won't take discipline. It won't take time. But it says it's possible. Lust is not who you are. Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Proverbs tells us, guard your heart. And we must. Because as we've seen, and as you might well know, in churches or family situations that being close to that this is a sin that God will use to destroy his church and to try to destroy God's people. We must. Because lust isn't real. Lust is not real, but love is. Love is real. And love is a gift from God in marriage sex and love in marriage but it's even bigger than that why we must fight for this marriage is a picture of the greatest love of all it's an object lesson from God of Christ and his church when we fight for marriage and sex we fight for something much deeper than a human idea or a social convention we fight for God's image of love for us And that's why we see this second illustration. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. Now Jesus teaches more about this in Matthew chapter 19. And I think it would be helpful for us to read that now rather than wait I don't know, another eight, nine, ten months, two years until we get to chapter, eight, chapter 19. Um, I forgot to put it up on screen. I'm sorry. So if you've got it in your Bible, turn over to Matthew chapter 19 now. Uh, I'm going to pick up at verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him, testing him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So what is the religious leader's understanding of the law? Well, they taught that the law permitted divorce, and they cited Deuteronomy 24 for this, that passage that says that a man may write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. Now, there's a couple of problems with this. The first problem that we read in that passage there is that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had made this a law within itself. They said Moses commanded to give a certificate of divorce. Like this was an accept or that this is something that should be done. It was a command. But that doesn't seem to be the case. We read this in the law because what Moses put in place, what the law said was a reaction to something that was already happening. This is not a new idea. The law is reacting to what the divorce that is already happening. Moses said a certificate of divorce was needed, but it was needed to protect women. In a culture where women relied on a husband, where a woman relied on a husband financially, where the woman had left her family and joined a new family unit, to then be thrown out of that family could mean that the woman was cast aside, left poor, and marginalized. The certificate of divorce was for the woman to still to be able to have the protections of marriages within the wider culture. That was the first problem with their understanding. The second problem was this question. Why might a man divorce his wife? The law said the certificate of divorce could be given if indecency was found in the woman. Well, what did this mean? Well, by the time of Jesus, and we saw in the question that they asked in the passage, the question was, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? Any cause. Indecency in the law for them could mean adultery, but they'd also interpret it that if a man decided, woke up one morning and said, I don't find my wife attractive anymore, I can divorce him. Even if a woman had prepared a bad meal for her husband, they would cite this law. In their mind, if your wife burnt your toast in the morning, this was grounds for divorce, all permitted within the law. Do you see what had happened? A law which was made to protect women to regulate divorce, to stop heedless divorce, had become an escape clause for indulgent sinful men. And Jesus says no. He says you are clinging to Moses to make excuses for your sin. But he takes them back to creation, to God's design. And he says, marriage is two people becoming one flesh. You cannot trivialize that. You cannot tear that apart. 
and Jesus restores the law to what it was. Not for any reason. No, there is not any cause you can go and divorce your wife. He says on the grounds of sexual immorality. And I know this one is particularly hard to talk about. And the result of divorce is pain and sadness. But those results is because exactly of what Jesus is saying here. In a low commitment society, in a society dismissive of marriage that lasts, we have to look at God's way and see that God's way is best. It's painful because it's not God's way. Now that doesn't mean we don't see divorce. And it doesn't mean that there is an allowance here because we've seen that. But we see it for what it is. Divorce happens because we live in a sinful world. And it was never God's way. And those who love the law don't treat it as the Pharisees. Fulfillment of the law isn't stretching it to its limit. What can we get away with? But fulfillment of the law is embracing it. That marriage is good. It's God's gift and therefore should be cherished and treasured. So as God's people, we must fight for marriage We must fight for our own marriage, our own marriages, and we must fight for marriage in the world. We can never see divorce as a natural or quick and easy fix. And when we do recognize divorce, well, we mourn it because it is sad and it is painful. And we walk alongside those who are suffering and suffering because of it and we love them because it was never as God intended. We see it, but we see it for what it is. And we love and walk alongside those who are suffering as a result because of it. I pray as a church that we would know what real love is. That we would know power in this area of gospel purity. And in the tough stuff, we are willing to talk about the tough stuff. We are able to walk together in hardness and tears and suffering and see it as a result of being in a sinful world. And ask God to give us strength to walk in it. Okay, two down, three to go. And if you're starting to panic, we're going to be here all day. Well, I'm sure you guessed we needed to spend a bit of time on these two. Um, We won't spend quite as much time on the next three, but that doesn't make them less important. Where the first two looked at love within marriage, the next three goes a lot wider and shows what love looks like in our relationship with the world around us. Number three, oaths. Verse 33, 
Again, you've heard it said, it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This one is a bit strange to us. But what it's talking about is making an oath, validating what you were saying by swearing upon something. And we see the law was about keeping these oaths. If you swear on something, keep to the Lord what you have sworn. And in some of the examples we've seen, there was a misunderstanding of the original law. But in this one, what the religious leaders had done had made a whole theology around this of their own that wasn't in the law. A complete crazy system that completely defend, uh, defeated the point of oath, really. It basically worked that they had made it that depending on what you swore on was how binding your oath would be. So, for example, and these are legitimate ones from the time, if you made a promise and swore by Jerusalem, that was not binding. But if you swore towards Jerusalem, it was. If you said, I swear by the altar of the sacrifice, that was okay, you didn't have to honor that one. But if you swore by the gift upon the altar of the sacrifice, well, you were in trouble if you broke that promise. It's crazy. It is the playground equivalent of making a promise and having your fingers crossed behind your back. I didn't mean it, crossedies or whatever you call it. Now, again, at the heart of it, it was how can I use the law to get what I want? How can I use the law to excuse my behavior? How can I use the law to make me look good? But that's not how love works. Jesus said, enough of this nonsense. I say to you, don't take an oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just say what you mean and keep your word, Jesus says. And you may ask, are we still in commandment territory here? Well, we are. This is ninth commandment. Don't lie. That's what they were doing, bearing false witness. Jesus says the law of love says be truthful. Loving God and each other and the world around us means valuing truth. God is truth. In him there is no lie and therefore God's people should be too. The tongue does so much damage. The book of James tells us that. With it, we can lie and gossip, exaggerate, slander, boast, flatter, and curse. But God says a Christian shouldn't be like that. The way of love says be people of your word. And what a witness to a world, a world surrounded by lies and fake news, a world that seeks truth. A Christian should be the most reliable person. In your workplace, they may hate you for, the, for your morals. But they should know if they want truth, you're the person they come to. You are the reliable one. You are the one who will do what you will say. You are the one who doesn't say one thing to someone's face and then says something totally different to another. We love in truth. Number four, retaliation, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The law offered a clear and just principle for punishing evil. But the purpose of this law was to make sure it was an appropriate response to avoid vendettas and excessive revenge. 
The law was there to make sure that punishment didn't go further than the crime. But again, the religious leaders had taken this and forced it, pushed it to the limits of what acceptable punishment looked like. But Jesus came and he says, no. He says, you be different. Yes, you're perfectly allowed to claim an eye for an eye by the law. But those who are living in the kingdom are willing to put down their rights for love's sake. As receivers of mercy from God, as the Beatitudes reminded us, show us, show that mercy to all around, even in the unfair bits, like when a Roman soldier could legally force you to carry his stuff for a mile. It was power play, humiliating, reminding the people that they were dominated. It was totally unfair. But Jesus says, don't resent, don't resist, do more than asked. Fulfillment of the law isn't seen in the one who claims their rightful retaliation, but in the one who doesn't seek revenge, in the one who doesn't make their rights the basis of their relationship with others, but is willing to put that down for love's sake. And finally, number five, love your enemies. We'll definitely pick this one up as we go through the book of Matthew, but verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now this one wasn't in the law. Well, the love your neighbor bit was, but the religious leaders had interpreted this as love Israel, your neighbor, and therefore hate everybody else. But Jesus completely blows that apart and he says, no, the law of love says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. This doesn't mean just put up with those people you don't like. No, he says pray for them. The deepest love you can show someone is by caring and praying and interceding for them and bringing them before the throne of God. There's a huge challenge for us in verse 47. You can read it quickly and miss it, but verse 47 says, what are you doing more than others? What are you doing more than others? What is our standard for love? Is it the same as the world's love those who love you? Well, there's nothing special there. See, kingdom living is the law of love and it calls us to more. One old writer said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good, well, that's human. And to return good for evil is divine. Do we see the call of kingdom living? to be radically different to the world around us, to be like the king who loves us so much. You see, what we try to see in this chapter is that the law is not dusty and dry, but it is living and loving. Listen to these well-known words of love in the epistles. Love is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That is not soppy. That is not soft. That is not weak. That is real love. Supernatural and powerful. It's not lust, it's not romanticized. It's real. That is the law of love. That is what kingdom living looks like. And that is what God is calling his people to walk in. And that's huge. And that's what we need to pray, that the Holy Spirit will help us that we would know supernatural love and supernatural forgiveness so that we can walk in God's law of love. Of course, none of this is possible on our own. It's only possible because of Jesus Christ. How do we know what real love is? Well, we look at him. We look to Jesus who has saved us, who has loved us, You are loved with a love beyond your wildest imagination. And this law, this holiness adventure, isn't dry and isn't dusty. But God says, come and walk in that love. It's hard. It's sacrificial. It's costly. But it's awesome. And that's our call. May God answer our prayers as we pray the Holy Spirit would help us walk in God's love for his glory. Amen.